AC and Efforts. It's that Adivistian time of the month. There are some pseudo-spoilers in this conversation. So be forewarned that if you listen to this before you read the story, you will be spoiled. Is that how it is? I don't know. Head to magazine.adivist.com to subscribe and read the treasure trove of narrative journalism put forth by Sayer Darby and Jonah Ogles. Also, shout out to Athletic Brewing, my favorite non-alcoholic beer out there. It's not a paid plug, but I am a brand ambassador, and I want to celebrate this amazing product. If you head to athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout, you get a nice little discount on your first order. Try the Athletic Light or Free Wave, my personal favorite right now. It's like you're in a house and you open a door and you're like, oh my God, look at this room. What is this? You know, it's an indoor pool. I had no idea, you know. I feel great doing this story because not for professional reasons, for human reasons. Oh, hey, CNFers. It's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, the show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. How's it going? Eric Pape, at Eric Pape on Twitter, is here to talk about his Adam's piece that delves into conspiracy theories and anti-vaxxers and self-help gurus it's man uh and 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 a, and a man's mental descent that erupts into tragedy and dismay i'm always impressed and downright intimidated by how people like eric pape stick the landing on these types of stories i can't read these things without thinking how i'd fuck them up if i had the same assignment because in the end, this show is all about me seeing efforts. Well, no, it isn't. Hey, my Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter will now be delivered by Substack. I'm moving from MailChimp to Substack because MailChimp, um, they, they went rogue. They went rogue, and I'm unhappy. Rageagainstthealgorithm.substack.com. Keep an eye out for that and subscribe if you haven't already. It's a micro essay by me, a little collage I do. And a list of 11 recommendations, including books, articles, products, I don't know, that should enrich your life and help you rage against the algorithm. First of the month, no spam, can't beat it. We also have a few new patrons over at Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash cnfpod. And I want to give them a shout out. So thanks to Kay Brady Costigan, Jeremy Norton, Charlie Hunt, and Bonnie Heilman. Two from March, two from February. Thank you, everyone, for the support, and for several of you that continue to support the show, longtime patrons, with your time, and of course, a few bucks every single month. Helps with the operations, keeps the one little light bulb in the office on, and that's all we can ask for. All right, stay tuned to the end of the show for my parting shot, but first, we're going to hear from Sayur Darby, the editor-in-chief of The Atavist, and also, if you didn't know, she's the author of Sisters in Hate. So let's get on. Let's get on with this. Let's let's talk to Sayward as we tease out Eric Pape's piece. All right. Huh. So for you as an editor, when you start seeing a lot of those kind of threads, what's the challenge for you to corral them so everything still moves forward? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, I think that you know, this is a devastating story on kind of every possible level. And when Eric yeah. brought it to me, uh, you know, one of the things I was really struck by 
is how so many forces and currents that are shaping our present reality, just, you know, as a civilization, as a culture, came to bear on this one narrative about what happened to this little boy and and ultimately, you know, his dad too. And so it feels like one of these stories that is on the one hand, very intimate, but on the other hand, speaks to just a far greater sort of crisis in which we find ourselves. And there were a lot of threads, rabbit holes to go down, um, which I know, you know, Eric, he's been reporting this for quite a while. Um, and I know he, he's gone down <laughs> quite a few, quite a few rabbit holes. And, you know, one of the things we talked about and worked on was uh, in figuring out how to bring some of these weirder, for lack of a better word, threads together, was remembering that there's always another story to tell. So, you know, you could almost take each of these rabbit holes, each of these unusual sort of aspects of the story. So, you know, a self-help group that some people call a cult um, or sort of the anti-vax advocacy space. And you could report just that and write a story about it. And so one of the things Eric and I talked about was he inevitably was going to gather more information about everything in the story than was going to need to be on the page as it pertained to this particular story. And so, you know, I think there's probably a lot on the cutting room floor. There's probably stuff that never even made it into the piece that I have to imagine. And maybe Eric, you know, spoke to this in his own conversation with you. I have to imagine that this, there's going to be fodder for other, other stories, other reporting. Um, and, and I think it's really special in a way when a story can do that, right. Where you kind of feel like you are almost reporting many stories at once. Um, then in the editing process, you know, it's my job as an editor to say, this is a really interesting detail. I do think that including it kind of takes us off the path of the main narrative, but I am emphasizing to you that it is an interesting detail and there might be space for it, you know, in another story. So that was really my role um, in, in figuring out how to shape these aspects of the story was to say what feels essential or illuminating in a way that really enhances the story and what feels interesting, but not necessarily you know, something that we feel like keeps this story on the track we want to keep it on. And it's definitely, I know I said this before in interviews, but it's an art, not a science. <laughs> um, but there were mm -hmm. definitely, particularly with regard to this uh, self-help group, Access Consciousness, which comes up in the piece for, for quite a while, uh, you know, there were many moments where I said, you know, to Eric, this is really interesting stuff. You're finding really interesting stuff. Um, you could write a whole piece about all of this and, and just this, but throwing all those details onto the page just because we have them and just because they're interesting doesn't necessarily serve the story uh, about this, about, you know, what happened to this, this little boy. Yeah, I would net, this was a devastating piece to work on um, emotionally. Um, but I think too, uh, you know, as an editor, there's always something interesting when you have so many different threads. Yes. But also it's almost you know, like so, sort of surprise doors, right? It's like you're in a house and you open a door and you're like, Oh my God, look at this room. What is this? You know, it's an indoor pool. I had no idea, you know? And that's kind of what this story felt like. Lots of surprise um, surprises behind doors. At the heart of it is a, a uh, this incredibly traumatic, tragic uh, event that when I was reading, like, it totally caught me off guard, like my total gut punch 
something I've ra- rarely experienced in, in even reading out of his pieces. Like sometimes you can feel what's coming right down the line, it, and it it's no less dramatic or engaging or entertaining in some cases to read. But in this case, I just didn't see that coming, and it just gets to I think Eric's skill to shape the story like that. And I imagine you had a hand in just really teasing that out as long as possible until we were finally like hitting the gut with you know the you know, the, the tragedy at the, at the heart of it really. Yeah. I I think that's, I think that's right. Um, and you know, we never want to be gimmicky about, you know, surprises in a story. Um, and I think, you know, in this case, we were really taking the mom, Leslie, who, uh, as our guide, right. She was the person through whom we experience, um, her, her ex-husband's, you know, decline into real paranoia um, and conspiracy theorizing, you know, obsession with uh, sort of anti-vax ideology. Uh, We watch her struggle to navigate that, to protect her child amidst that, to navigate a family law landscape that, you know, is very hesitant to take a parent out of a child's life unless absolutely necessary. And I think that, you know, one of the, the things that's is interesting about Leslie. And I think a lot of people in the world are like this, you know, you want to believe in the best version of someone, right? Even when time and time again, they are proving that that best version is actually far less good, possibly not good at all. You know, maybe the best version of someone is still a pretty crappy version, but still believing that they ultimately will not do the worst possible thing. Right. Um, And, and I think that you see her, throughout the story, grappling with that, that sort of instinct. And I think she was truly caught off guard. I think that, you know, this was just unbelievable to her. I think it still is unbelievable to her what happened. And I think that we wanted readers to have that same experience. Um, Because I think too, you know, it points to here, you know, we live in this world in which there is a lot of a lot of disinformation, uh, a lot of a lot of lies, a lot of fear, um, and a lot of what feels like simmering forces of violence, right? And and yet, you know, we wake up every day, and you know, or at least I do, <laughs> you know, hoping hoping that you know the world's going to hold it together <laughs> um, for another day. And uh, and I think that you know Leslie was doing the same thing with regard to her own life. And by by the end of things, you know, she was building a new life. She had gotten a divorce, and she had a partner, and you know was was building a life that she was so much happier with. And you know, then this terrible thing happens, her being caught off guard was just really something caught off guard is putting it way too lightly. I mean, being, you know, shocked by a terrible thing happening. We really wanted readers to feel that too, to kind of go on this journey with her um, and and with her son. With such uh, traumatic or, you know, tragic events that happen to people. And then there there are people like us who are drawn to the narrative guts of stories, even if they are traumatic and might be hard for people to relive but it's kind of kind of what we do as journalists to tease out and write these kind of stories in a compelling entertaining way but it's still at the heart of it can feel a little kind of like icky that you might be in some way profiting off of someone else's tragedy 
And, you know, as, as an editor and a reporter yourself, when you've encountered this kind of cross-section of wanting to tell that story but also feeling icky about possibly capitalizing on that, how have you learned to, to navigate that, like pitching yourself that you're not some maybe drive-by reporter and you're looking to I don't know, tell a rich story that maybe s- celebrates them in a certain way and doesn't take advantage of them? Yeah. I mean, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think that at the atavist, I and mean, I say this to, to writers and even to, you know, sources, sometimes we really do operate from a principle of do no harm. Um, yeah. and what I mean by that, you know, obviously if you're doing an investigative piece and exposing wrongdoing by, you know, certain people and, uh, you know, by exposing that you are in some way, you know, upending their, their livelihood or, you know, whatever it may be like, that's, that's not the type of harm I'm, I'm talking about. Right. Like that's, that's justice. Um, uh, even if the person for, for whom justice is, uh, you know, being served, uh, disagrees. Uh, and I, when I say do no harm, I mean, when you're dealing with sources of stories who are being open with you, um, when you're dealing with subject matter that can be painful, for sources, even potentially, you know, for readers, how do you approach that with this mindset of, I am here to tell the the most accurate, fairest, most compelling story I can, but compelling never trumps fairness, never trumps a person's well-being if that person is, you know, not someone who you are trying to hold accountable in some way. And so, uh, you know, just because you have a really juicy, for lack of a better word, detail, doesn't mean you have to include it in the story. If it's going to be, you know, harmful in some way, upsetting in some way, um, you know, to a uh, a source. And I think that, uh, you know, in this case, I was not, you know, part of the conversation when Eric and Leslie first started communicating because he had already interviewed her extensively when when he reached out and pitched this story. But I think that they had built a rapport. He had really gotten her to trust him, trust that he was going to do right by this story. She is also very much, and I think this will come through in the piece, um, she is very much you know, on a mission to have this story told because she thinks it's important. Um, and you know, she thinks there are a variety of sort of actors and institutions that should be held, held accountable for everything that that happened. And I think that that, you know, is an important energy that she brought to the reporting process because she really wants the story out there. That being said, by way of example, like recently, Eric, in a later in the process interview, somebody said something that's third hand information. Um, you know, ultimately, we I don't, I don't think included it in the story, but it was the kind of thing where when he shared it with me, we both you know immediately said well, we would never put this in the story without talking to Leslie about it first, right? Like there's no desire to put a detail in that would surprise someone like, you know, like a Leslie, like a source, a subject who we know to be traumatized. We know to be vulnerable in one way or another. And so, you know, I think Eric strikes exactly the right tone in this piece. I'm actually struck. I've read it now so many times, but every time I do, (laughs) I'm really struck by how it manages to be very measured and very mature while at the same time, like absolutely ripping your heart out. You know, that comes with having, you know, a lot of experience 
And it comes with having said, I'm going to invest a lot of time, a lot of resources into my relationship with the main subject, but also, you know, with the subject matter. So, so yeah, you know, there's no precise rubric for, for how we do this. Each story is different, but you know, there have been more times than I can count in the process of being an editor where I'm sitting with information. I'm sitting with a question, you know, potentially talking about it with a writer or a source and making a judgment call where we say, you know, does this detail feel, or does this, you know, way of framing things feel right? Like, what does my gut tell me? And, you know, we would never not put something in a story that we, you know, was essential or, you know, illuminating in some way, you know, we would never not put it in if we felt like it really needed to be in there. But especially when you're dealing with narrative writing of this variety, so often, you know, you get details that are maybe, you know, great from a descriptive standpoint, great from a quote standpoint, but, you know, is it, is it necessary? And I think, you know, this is, it doesn't, doesn't happen every story. It certainly, you know, it, you know, in this story, even, you know, there were only a few moments where we kind of had these, these uh, types of conversations, but it's definitely something when we're dealing with um, particularly difficult stories, stories about trauma um, that we're always thinking about. Very nice. Well, I'm going to kick this conversation over to Eric and uh, I've already spoken to him and it's going to be a, you know, really, really fruitful conversation about a lot of these threads that you and I have just kind of teased out for it. So uh, as always, Sayward, you know, thanks for covering out the time and uh, we'll, we'll do this again soon. Thanks for coming on. Sounds good. Okay, well now it's time for Eric Pape. He's a journalist and journalism instructor at the University of Southern California. Some people have called his work emotional journalism, which is pretty spot on, especially for this piece. You can visit ericpape.journoportfolio.com for links to his extensive body of work. His site says he's a journalist, writer, editor, analyst, media trainer, professor, and graphic novelist. Yeah, he's a bit of a mensch, if I'm using that word correctly. So, pretty great chat about writing and reporting on sensitive topics with traumatized people. Hey, let's do this. Let's get after it. All right, here's Eric. Well, uh, I came upon the story. I was I was looking for a story in the in the vaccine space to try to understand, and this was from very early on in the pandemic. I got a grant from the McGraw Business Fellowship and then subsequently another one from the Charles uh, Rapali Investigative Fund. And I was looking for the story that I thought would sort of cut through on the issue that would cut through in ways that that surprisingly the actual pandemic was not cutting through. I think a lot of people very reasonably uh, assumed early on in the pandemic that um, that people who were concerned about vaccines and the and the and the the old school anti-vax movement would, upon seeing the scale of the pandemic, kind of shift and change. And I, and I do know some people who did, uh, people who I don't they wouldn't they weren't anti-vaxxers per se, but they were very vaccine skeptical, and some of them very quickly became open to the idea of a vaccine for for COVID nineteen. Uh, anyways, I was looking around in this space to see what cut through, and and more and more, I was finding that things weren't cutting through, that that thousands and then tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of people dying 
didn't change some people's minds about vaccines. And over time, we've we've only seen more doubt rise in, uh, in the minds of, of, of many people um, as, as the pandemic has, has faded from the daily lives of, of many people. So while I was looking for that and, and looking for something that felt like it would really add something to the discussion and the dialogue, um, I learned of uh, this story of, of Leslie Hugh and her her ex-husband, Stephen O'Laughlin, and it immediately cut to the core. It's something that happened in the days after the January 6th assault on the Capitol, um, and in some ways seemed like it logically intertwined with it. And the story went so far beyond issues of vaccines. Uh, it goes into issues of abusive relationships, men who are obsessed with control, uh, people who go down internet rabbit holes and get lost, and then uh, believe in one conspiracy and then another conspiracy and then a third conspiracy. The conspiracies could uh, contradict each other, but as long as they were sort of semi-coherent within each one, a person could believe multiple ones. Uh, I did research on who is most susceptible to believing uh, false conspiracy theories, and, and the research indicated that that people who uh, believe in one are more likely to believe in another, and people who believe in two are more likely to believe in another, and so on and so on. Um, but all of the, so all of these issues were were, were in the air. Um, there were issues immediately in the story in my mind relating to uh, misinformation, disinformation, uh, custody battles, family law. A woman trying to leave. This is one of the core aspects of the story. A woman trying to leave a terrible relationship and feeling trapped. And then there's other issues that I'm just fascinated by, which is how um, people with strong sociopathic tendencies uh, affect other people who do not have them and sort of corral them and trap them, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in relationships or in, in other social interactions. So all of these things were sort of in the air. But the the, the real thing that, that cemented this story to me was I was talking with someone uh, who lived down the street from me, actually, he, a father, a sweet father of three children, who was clearly not interested in having his, his small children vaccinated whenever the, the vaccine uh, was going to be, to be made usable for children. And we were in a, in a park nearby and I bumped into him and he said, he said, he asked how I was doing and asked what I was working on. And I said, well, I'm, I'm preparing to go up to San Francisco to tell this story. And he said, well, what is it? And I started talking to him about it. We had talked about vaccines many times and he had a, he had a response for everything. Everything um, could be made into, could fit into his arguments about vaccines for, for COVID-19 and, and many other vaccines being bad. And there was no, no doubt in his mind. Um, he was a loving father, took care of his kids. Uh, you know, our kids would play together sometimes when they were in the park. And I started telling him the story of, of Stephen O'Laughlin and Leslie Hugh uh, and their son Pierce. And he stood there. He just kept asking me more questions and more questions. And rather than sort of batting away any, any question or issue relating to the vaccine side of the story, he was fascinated and mesmerized and he's holding his baby on his shoulder and he, you know he's cramping up and I'm like well, we can go we can finish this conversation later and he said no no I want to I want to hear how this goes and then I told him the story and how it played out and the the conclusion of the story and he was just uh, shell-shocked and he couldn't and and for me it cut through this issue that society was you know, fighting so intent intensely about. There was a core thing in it that he couldn't understand, which is what the, what the, this man, Stephen O'Laughlin ended up doing. And, and that's when I knew that this story was something that I was wanted to, 
really delve into in a really deep and profound way. And then I spent most of the last year and a half, uh, the next year and a half after that, um, doing that to deliver the story. What's crazy about, you know, maybe people who are especially susceptible to conspiracy theories or they have an idea in their head and you can, if you have a certain idea, you can find whatever answer you want to support yourself on the internet. It's just that way. And if you're on YouTube, if you watch enough videos on a certain amount of content, it's just going to automatically start feeding that stuff to you, which is only going to dig your heels in even more and actually make, and make those delusions feel all the more true to you. And it's just that that's just the ecosystem we live in. And it's what makes it really scary now. Well, if, if you think about it in the old days, you know, you had to go to a library and you had right. to dig up a book and then reference another book and then get a whole bunch of books and you could start piecing things together. Now, we know that a lot of things and a lot of books are not actually true, but there was sort of a bar that people used to have that publishing was hard to do and it required investment, which meant faith from some publisher. You, you could sew together a conspiracy based on that or based on articles in media. And then, and then we had this rise of the, the internet. Well, actually, before the rise of the internet, we had uh, desktop publishing became a thing. So, so the, the, the challenge of getting something published actually became a lot less. And then the internet just blew that away. And suddenly everyone can publish the, the old journalistic axiom that freedom of the press belongs to those who own one. Well, we all can own a website. You know, it's pre-formatted. We don't need, we don't, yeah. don't need HTML. We don't need to be able to build the website. Um, it's just gotten easier and easier. So you can, you can have a click through from what in the old days would have, would have been one book to another or, or one magazine printed out to another or microfiche, which I think a lot of younger people don't even know what it is. Uh, yeah. Now you're just clicking through and clicking through and it can all feel like limitless evidence to support whatever you want or whatever someone wants you to, to start to believe and support. And it, it takes a sharp critical mind in this day and age to see through that sometimes to see where things are credible, to see, you know, journalists are flawed, writers are flawed, academics are flawed, scientists are flawed. Everyone, everyone has flaws, but it doesn't mean uh, that all information is equal, which I think is an impression that a lot of people can get, or that all information is something you don't believe other than the information that you want to believe. And then you just find, which is getting back to your point, you just find the information that sort of cements what you already believed. And that that I think is a really an incredibly dangerous thing in, in, in this era. Yeah. And prior to our conversation, we were, you know, we just batted around this idea of like this day and age granted, you know, there has been misinformation or disinformation going back decades into various tabloids and periodicals, but it was not as easily accessible in media literacy being what it was and what it needs to be is, is far more, complicated and you have to have a far more discerning eye to determine what's credible and what's not what's misinformation versus credible information and you know what would you propose to just get people more more literate when it comes to how we metabolize and certainly ingest information um you know one of the things i do is i teach it at at the university of southern california and I, t I teach journalism to usually graduating undergrads and mostly to graduate students. And one of the things that I try to get them to do and understand and cultivate the most is 
critical thinking, but critical thinking that is rigorous and that doesn't just say, I don't believe this, I don't believe this, I don't believe this, I'm doubting the official story that's out there, I'm going to get to, I'm going to sort of, you know, red pill, blue pill the issue. It is to look for credible sources of information, of data um, that support something or that undermine something and to and to look at it there. That part of what makes this era so dangerous is that you have such sophisticated media channels now that seem disconnected from actual from, from a lot of, a lot of truth <laughs> that seemed more motivated by um, getting people to have political beliefs. There's there's been a blurring that you know this has always been an issue. There's always been a tension here, but in in this era, it is so easy for political parties or just political forces within parties to to spread information, get it out on social media. A lie goes much farther than the truth is the saying that in, in, in journalism, we know that if you, if you put some, some vigorous lie out, it's going to do far better on social media than the correction of that lie. So if, if it goes out to 10 people and nine of them never see your correction, then, then the misinformation or the, the mistaken information is still out there. I think Solutions. I think we're we're all looking for them. We're we're struggling to find them. Uh, people will attack journalists, writers, politicians. You know, people in all fields. Really, uh, anyone on the internet can be attacked vociferously, not based on what they're really saying, but based on things that just might effectively get people to think about them in a negative way. And then that's the way you undermine the truth that some people are delivering. I guess I don't have a real. Uh, easy answer for this. I think I think a lot of the of very smart people in this country and around the world are are working on it because we're realizing how much it can undermine politics, justice, uh, courts, people speaking for themselves um, in ways that that are are responsible, and and so many other things. And I I, I genuinely don't don't have an easy answer. I, I I could probably write a book about the search for one. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh... You know, with Leslie Hugh at the center of the story and given the sensitive nature of the story at large, how did you go about cultivating trust and getting access to her so you could you know, properly re- report the story out? Uh, Leslie Hugh is a remarkable um, woman. She went through something wrenching, unimaginable, and I met her uh, – it's about five months after the, the the culmination of the story, and she was simultaneously like an open wound, and simultaneously conveyed a, a incredible resilience and strength that I'm sure she didn't know that she had inside of her. She she often would despair and lose hope. In talking with her, I I think for for me as a as a as a journalist, I um and 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 as a human being. I felt so much for for her circumstances. Um, I had just left my when I went up to San Francisco just to take a step back. I had just celebrated my my son's ninth birthday, and I went up there to interview her. And it was you know a huge part of the story was about her nine year old son, and so it was a, a powerful human connection for me. It actually became very hard uh, in ways that I didn't expect. I'm someone I've written extensively about uh, war crimes, about war, post-war trauma. It just felt so intimate on, on this one level. And so in talking to, to Leslie, uh, I tried to be 
you know, a full-fledged human being who also, you know, I've worked a lot and been with a lot of people who have been through really intense traumas. And so I would try to talk to her in a way that would convey how she might get through this, how she might um, process this whole experience as much as she could. So I I think we connected on that and she's expressed, uh, she's talked about the the process of, of, of telling this story in the year and a half since then as, as a therapeutic one, as one that's helped her to make sense, make sense of the parts that she can make sense of. I pointed out to her that something that I had often seen for people who have gone through extreme trauma is when they take their hardship and the pain and the thing, the things that they can't make disappear, but they could put it at the service of something else, like helping other people to avoid that. And I think that's been a huge part of the, and she took that to heart more than I ever dreamed. Uh, and she she is looking for ways to make sure that other people don't go through the the sorts of things that that occurred and that are detailed in the story. At what point did you, you know, now as you're starting to fill up your notebook or your recorder, yeah, at what point do you start to feel like, all right, I've got I've got enough here. I I'm getting a sense of a through line. Now I can draw up, uh, you know, a pitch or something that can convey where I think the story might go. I think part of that was even before I went up there because I was so convinced it was so clear from that experience I talked about in the park with, with the guy down the street. Uh, and, and I, and I tried, I brought it up to a number of other people. I brought it up to two women I know who connected to the story on a totally different level. Women I know who don't have children and who had been in uh, controlling relationships with a real controlling partner. I know someone who was brought up out of the blue, the power of, uh, who, who was getting divorced from someone who they only realized after the fact was a had really strong sociopathic tendencies. And this woman was telling me, this has nothing to do with this story, but this woman was telling me, I, I just don't know how I didn't see it. I was with this person for years. How did I get so blinded? And she was afraid to get in another relationship because of that. And there's, there's a lot of parallels there uh, with this story. And so people I would talk to the story about connect to it on that you know, nightmarish partner controlling uh, sociopathic, egocentric, all, you know, all of these qualities that, that, that no one really wants in there and in, in the love of their life. So I, I felt that that, that story was there. There's, there's the, the custody battle that is key to the story is a huge part of it as well. And people who have gone through divorces, whether as the people divorcing or their children, I think can really connect to, to, to the, the brutality of, of a divorce in these kinds of circumstances. Uh, there's the issue of vaccines, which is so obvious as a just such a polemic issue uh, in the country then and now, still for for people who who are are, are fighting against the the, the COVID nineteen vaccines. Um, although this story, this story, as as you know, centers around um, vaccines before there was a COVID nineteen vaccine. It centers around um, childhood vaccines um, for for you know, newborns and 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 very small children. So there, there were just all of these different issues that seemed so compelling. And so when someone says, what's the story about? Um, it's, it's actually a more challenging question than, than, than uh, harder to answer than, than I usually find. And the reason is that it is an, an intersection of complex issues in some, in some people's lives that add up to a really fascinating and powerful story. But it's not any one thing. It's, it's all of these things. To, to me, it's fundamentally about uh, Leslie Hugh, 
this woman and, and the, her love for her son and her and her sort of quest to survive. Yeah, they uh, sometimes when drawing up uh, a picture, even just trying to get your focus, get your head around all the information, sometimes it helps to try to distill it, like capital A, what is it about, into yeah. like a word or a phrase. And there are so many spokes to the wheel in this story. I mean, it it, re- it reads incredibly well. It's it's gripping, and it goes in so many different directions. Did you have a hard time getting your head around all of this so it did feel cohesive despite all the different spokes? Uh, y- yeah. <laughs> The, the easy answer is yeah, yes, it, it it was hard. Well, I should say it was hard and it wasn't. It wasn't in that the core story is so powerful. It gave a spine from a storytelling perspective. It gave a spine to the story, mm-hmm. but but or or a, a trunk. If maybe the, the metaphor of a tree is better. And then there were all of these branches, and so many of the branches became so much. They became so much thicker and sturdier than I expected. Every time there would be a small detail to follow. Uh, looking at at uh, some of the the self help groups and spiritual groups um, that are a key part of the story, uh, I wasn't I wasn't really expecting to have some of those details become as expansive as they were, but they became absolutely fascinating. The the you know Tony Robbins is in this story, the the self help guru who who was a became a very big figure in the 1990s when he worked with with Bill Clinton and and many other you know, high profile people. Uh, in the country and uh, and over abroad, um, there's a group called Access Consciousness, uh, based in Texas. It's another. It's absolutely fascinating. It's sort of modeled in 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 some ways on Scientology, and the the story of its creation is fascinating. Um, how how they draw people in, how they drew in Stephen O'Laughlin uh, in, in into the group and and got him to become a a big part of the group. How this affects the mind of someone who is searching uh, and who becomes who becomes uh, contemplative and, and spiritual in ways that you I think few people around him ever expected. But then how does it actually affect his relationship to reality, to facts, to to the to the the, the terrestrial world? And and that was fascinating too. So yeah, I mean to 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 get at your point, it was easy to pitch it and to to hint at some of the fascinating things that were there, it was hard to actually write parts of that because all of the different portions of the story are so so riveting and troubling and you know in a few moments uplifting. But it's it's a it's a story of someone trying to survive and escape, uh, uh, you know, with with her son. Uh, so so the, I guess that core story of of you know the search for survival is so palpable. That's the easy part going into all of these different worlds, you know, going to Germany, going to Egypt, going to Indian parts of the story. Uh, I think it became hard to boil it down to the details that were just the core details because any of those portions of it were, were almost cinematic. You wanted to, you wanted to go in more and more and more, but the real story, the the central story is the story of, of Leslie Hugh and her son Pierce, you know, trying to survive uh, a, a husband and the next husband who, who was, you know, declining very fast. Yeah, and the the self-help spur is particularly engaging because it it seems like there's a you know, there there's a kind of mind that is particularly drawn to that and I think a lot of us all want to like 
improve and try to optimize ourselves as best we can so we can live a, as fulfilling a life as possible. And it's part of the the rub or the, the appeal to of those guru types out there who feel like they can deliver that to us if we're willing to <laughs> spend $10,000 to do it. But uh, when when you were going down, you know, that rabbit hole, did you notice that in someone like uh, Stephen O'Loughlin, who was uh, particularly drawn to that and the manifestation that some of those gurus promise that in the wrong in the wrong hands, it can almost be uh, like dangerous or like weaponized self-help, if you will. It's, you know, self-help is complicated, right? People want to. Yeah improve and people who are struggling, you know, hopefully they want to improve and you want people to get the help that they need. And the the question is whether the help they're getting is the help that they need and whether it's also in good faith is something that comes up a lot in this uh, because a lot of self-help groups are capitalist enterprises, they're businesses. So some of them may start with something genuine and authentic and then get lost because they're running a business with a bunch of employees or people have, in some cases, have fancy, you know, homes and jets and, and, and all the rest. Um, in some cases, there's self-help that really does help a lot of people. And in some cases, you get structures that draw in vulnerable people and um, can exploit them. And then it, it leads to questions about where does it leave them? Where does this new worldview that maybe masks in some in, in certain cases a desire to pull more money out of people. But where does it leave those people after the fact? I, I don't think the people in these groups had any idea what Stephen O'Loughlin was capable of. And yet some of them may well have contributed to his decline. And in other ways, this is someone who was already getting sucked down, you know, internet rabbit holes and different conspiracy theories, including some really really wild ones that are laid out in in the story. As, as Leslie Hugh said, uh, I was dealing with QAnon long before QAnon. Hmm. And, and she meant in her marriage. But when he started getting help, in some ways he stopped fixating on some of the really wild and crazy conspiracy theories that he, w- he was buying into because he was getting a worldview, I think, where it channeled a lot of that energy. So initially some of that might have seemed you know, positive to her. It might have seemed like he wasn't staying up all night and she'd wake up in the morning and her husband, uh, while she's taking care of, of their infant, uh, her husband is telling her about the latest, you know, you know, that Obama was born in a cave and talking about Illuminati and talking about everything else. Uh, some of the conspiracy theories are so creative uh, that, 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 I mean, it's just mind boggling. Uh, but I, th- I, th- I think that there is... There's the part that could be positive and, and constructive. And then there's a part that can aid people because they can become so reliant on a structure or on a leader of a structure, um, sort of gurus who I think we know that people who have absolute power in any environment who, who are not really called to account can, can uh, become megalomaniacs and they can start to... Uh, interfere with 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 the people that they're supposedly helping actually being healthy so i i think all of these tensions are 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 there in the story um into you know various degrees with the different the different people that stephen o'laughlin and and leslie hugh were were encountering and how it was affecting him and as you are getting all this information from all these kind of different different branches on the trunk of this tree 
when you're starting to set down to to write the piece and structure it out, you know, how are you outlining or starting to organize your thoughts so you can get down a what you hope in the end is a coherent first draft that you can work from? I think it was clear to me early on that the story needed to be a mystery uh, because that is how Leslie Hugh and, and her boyfriend after she was divorced uh, lived it. They were trying to figure out where, where their son was. And it's such a relatable, palpable um, thing. And that mystery holds in the air when you're going into all of these different worlds, when you're going into uh, – you know, this guy starting to believe that that the United Nations was going to send, you know, uh, uh, people to come uh, arrest them in, in, in his house or or that the government was going to come for him. And he started keeping guns and and food in the car uh, and had like packages of food for each member of the family to flee. Uh, it holds together when you get to the you know, when, when they go abroad to, to try to uh, he goes abroad in part because he believed that there were all of these media conspiracies and he wanted to see for himself, you know, what the world beyond was, I think. And that's that's the, the, the impression that I get. And and so they go to Germany and then they go to Egypt in the middle of major protests that were all over the TV in, in Tahrir Square. And he wanted to go. He he told his wife he wanted to go because it, he, he was convinced it was a lie and that it wasn't really happening. And it's that there are all of these twists and turns in the story that are riveting on their own. But the central thing that, that holds it all together is this woman trying to survive with her son and try, trying to survive a, a, a terrible marriage and the decline of a of, of her husband. Uh, and so to me, setting up that uh, the mystery in the beginning of, of what happens gave it enough uh, weight and strength to hold it together and to keep people, keep people caring about her and her son and while they're going into all of these fascinating different worlds that the story uh, delves into. When I was talking with um, a f- freelancer, um, she wrote this feature about for Outside Magazine about um, this uh, young woman who, uh, in 1976, uh, died mountaineering. She got sick up there and she passed away. And she's been written about a bunch over the years um, to report. And she she felt like this weird push pull like she wanted to tell the story and honor the story but at the same time she was feeling kind of um like exploitative of it and was worried about like picking at the scab of the family and friends who lost us even though it happened you know 40 some odd years ago and you know given how sensitive this is and how sensitive things that you've reported on in the past how do you wrestle with that idea of you know writing about tragedy in a way that is you know, it, it's like part of what, you know, we do for a career, but it's also like these other people's lives. So there's always that kind of, I don't know, an ethical push pull of like, when is it okay to tell someone's story for our own gain versus not doing it at all? If that makes any sense, it's uh, kind of a, I, have I, a, I think it's a very healthy question. And uh, I think that a lot of journalism um, does unfortunately cross that line. You know, in, in TV, people are under such pressure, in, in local TV news in particular, and such pressure to get something and to get it on. And there, there's not a lot of time for contemplation. They have to get a, they have to get a, you know, a, a camera shot. 
they and they and they're told by producers you have to get you know the, get a relative and it can be really crass and difficult and demeaning and I know a lot of former people who've worked in that space who s- struggled with that um, but that applies to to people who write that that applies to to radio to an, an extent I I think uh, two thoughts come to mind one is that in this story because of the way things played out there was a surge of media just after actually just after um, the the siege at the Capitol. There was a surge of media in the story, but it kind of got subsumed by the siege on the Capitol and all of the aftermath and, you know, how the end of the Trump presidency was going to go. And some of that material can feel demeaning and crass. Some of it was, was quite well done, but, but still uh, it's kind of a, a, there's a drive-by element to it. So mm. I wasn't worried about doing that. I I know that it's, you know, when I when I'm doing a story like this, I'm going to go deep. I spoke to students up at up near Stanford University years ago, high school students, and uh, a, a teacher talked about the sort of journalism that that I often do, and he described it as emotional journalism. And I, I hadn't really thought of the term like that, but there's an emotional um, depth or emotional understanding that I aim for. And so for something like this, I, I'm going to approach it with a lot of compassion. And uh, I'm also going to bring in my own experiences when I'm talking to to people who are involved, um, who, who have suffered trauma, to offer a sense of how other people um, deal with trauma and process it, and in some cases overcome the parts of it that can be overcome, and then the parts of it that stay with you and how that evolves. And sometimes it can almost end up being the trauma itself can be like a family member, or the, or the loss can be like a family member. So talking about all of these different things, um, I think uh, pushes me to make this a constructive thing. And I hope that the, that the, the someone like, like Leslie Hugh um, feels like it is, it has been useful and even therapeutic. If you, if you think about therapy, therapy, when people go to therapy, they're usually learning. Yeah. They learn coping mechanisms, et cetera, but a lot of people in therapy or, or in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, they're engaging in what might be called um, might be called narrative therapy, where they're learning to tell their own story. But in learning to tell their own story, they have to understand their own story. And by understanding their own story, it makes sense of things that don't otherwise make sense. When we're living our lives in this chaos and crazy things happen, whether it's because of ourselves or because of other people around us, it can feel random. It can feel like we're victims of circumstance. It can feel like we don't know why things happen because we don't usually stop and think about it to do a, a story that is this challenging emotionally and um, requires, you know, I spent a lot of time talking with Leslie Hugh and, and, and a bunch of other people. She's learning to, to or put her story in order in some ways, the way people do in, in, in that there is a narrative therapy effect. I think that often happens. I've seen this many times in my career to get people to go through the past and make sense of it. Because if I can't make sense of it, how can I tell parts of, you know, how can I tell the story? And so I try to share that with them when I can. And when I have questions about that and things I can't figure out, I'll talk to them about it. And sometimes they, they can't figure it out either. And and, and we'll talk together, but, but in the end, hopefully the goal in, in this kind of journalism, when, when I do it is for it to have been useful and constructive for the people who have gone through, you know, intense hardship. One other thing I would add is something I, I often tell to my students at USC is 
when you're interviewing someone, I had students who were interviewing a woman whose son had died in a bike accident and they were incoming graduate students and they were nervous about talking to her. They said they didn't want to re-traumatize her. Mm. And I had to point out to them that that woman wakes up every day and her son is not there. It's not like, uh, it's not like that, that, that mother doesn't know that. It's not as though she's not struggling with that all the time. This woman had, had a, a ghost bike ne- near the front of her apartment. A ghost bike is, uh, they're these bikes that are painted white where people have, have died in, in accidents and they're sort of memorials. And so this woman was thinking about it all the time. So what, what I said to my students was, she knows there's no surprise to her. You, you not asking doesn't mean she feels better or worse. If you did it insensitively, of course, yes, it could be a terrible thing. But if it's done empathetically and for a higher purpose and, and you communicate the higher purpose of that woman who lost her son in the bicycle accident is talking because hopefully it will help prevent other people from having that loss, there is some degree of constructiveness. And, I, and to me, that's also a, a therapeutic effect. And, and I think Leslie Hugh in this story has been very much about, about that, looking for, for the, the, the constructive and useful things and to help other people avoid the various types of hardship and extreme hardship that she and her son went through. This is something that you probably speak with your, your students about and something you definitely exercise yourself in your own practice is this idea of, of interviewing for information and interviewing for scene and especially when you're dealing with you know, sensitive things and having to reconstruct uh, very just you know sensitive scenes and sensitive uh, sensitive uh, issues. So when when you're approaching those two different styles of information, it's just like how how do you you know in, interview for information versus you know for scene, especially when you're dealing with you know such uh, you know sensitive subject matter. I think it's it's a great question, and and oftentimes I think you generally want to do the informational first, so, so you get many of the basics beforehand. Um, you research as much as you can. Uh, you have sort of the spine of what happened, and then the the details are always going to be a little different, even from from how, how, what what you might initially hear. Um, in a story like this, there was there were so many. Yeah, it it was a big challenge, and it it it's picking it's it, it involves recognizing the moments that are going to be scenes. Recognize because you can't ask someone to describe everything. You can't say, "Put me there." You know, walk me in the front door. What was it like? What did it smell like? You know, what what did it look like? What what did you feel? You know, what did the dust feel like? Uh, it, you can't do that all the time. It's too exhausting, and it's just too much. It's like you're asking the person to be there for a novel, so you pick the scenes that feel evocative and important key turning points or particularly salient moments. And then you go back usually and you'll, you'll talk to them. Uh, you know, depends on different stories, but for a story as expansive as this one, um, it involved a lot of going back and, and, and double and triple checking and, and getting people they're, they're getting people to, to think differently at different times. So in the interview, sometimes sort of talking factually and, and what was this and what was that and what was the other thing, but then at other times pivoting to put me there, use your five senses, you know, tell me how this was, or what do you remember, or, or what did you feel? There's definitely a, a lot of toggling that goes on. 
I, I try to not have it be too much whiplash for the, the, the person that I'm interviewing. Um, I try mm-hmm. to make it as efficient as possible. And the, but sometimes you have to be reactive in the moment and toggle because you realize that there, there's a special moment that, that can be conveyed. Something I'm very sensitive to is when you talk to people about, about very difficult moments in their lives, some journalists get what they want and leave. And, and I think of it almost like a surgery. If you're going to open someone up emotionally or psychologically to talk about such sensitive things, you have to close them up. You can't leave, mm. you can't leave them there while they're, they're sort of an open wound. Um, I, I just think it's That's such really a, dis- well said, yeah. it's, it's a disrespectful thing to do that. And I just think it's, you know, morally wrong to do that. Um, and getting back to the positive things, getting back to uh, making sense of things, getting back to the constructive part and, and also reminding them of why you're there to tell that story, which for me is usually because, you know, we want to make sure that other people aren't going to go through this, if that's at all possible, if there's accountability, if there are other things that could be done to, to help solve whatever the problem is that you're writing about. But to me, that that's, that's just a crucial, crucial element. Kind of getting to that, back to that point of the teacher who, said your lack of a better term like brand of journalism is like emotional journalism and you know this story definitely has just a you know a gut-wrenching emotional through line through it with you know leslie hugh being at the center of it and her son would you would you identify as like that is um almost like uh the north star of the stories that you're drawn to that you want to report and invest you know, in the case of this one, you know, year and a half to, to do. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I go to what I'm fascinated by and what I'm troubled by and what I think is powerful and significant. And, and so this story was all of those things. I've done a lot of types of journalism in my career. I used to work for Newsweek magazine uh, internationally, and um, that is not a place for emotional journalism. It, or mm-hmm. I should say Newsweek's changed a great deal uh, at the time. It wasn't. And, and it's not now it's just a different thing now, but it's, it's uh, I've, I've worked for, uh, for daily newspapers writing in Southeast Asia. I, I've worked, but yes, to, to answer your question. Yes. The, 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 the stories that I tend to get drawn the most to are hum- stories of human impact, often around uh, resilience and overcoming people trying to overcome scars and trauma and big challenges, whether that's in Central or Western Africa or in various parts of Europe or the Middle East um, or Latin America or here in the United States. So this this context is very different. This is, a, you know, Stephen O'Loughlin was a, um, a white-collar Republican in San Francisco who went on what he sort of described as a spiritual journey that, you know, obviously went very, very wrong. So the the context is very different, but but the the core of the story with Leslie Hugh and her son, I I think, is very much in sync with with the work that I've cared the most, the types of work that I've cared the most about, and that I think are are, is incredibly important. And it takes really a lot of work to do it. So you have to have a clear north star. You have to know why you're there, and why this is. um, Why do you do all of the work and get into all of the intense? emotional reporting and, and, and all of the other very complex details to tell the story. And for me, it's very, very clear. Um, my, my, my wife says 
she seemed to be working on the story and she, and she knows, knows how intense the, the weight of it was. And she said that she, um, she sort of said she, she was sorry that I was going through that. And I said, no, I, f- I feel great doing this story <laughs> because not for professional reasons, for human reasons, because I, I think Leslie Hugh is, is a remarkable story of survival. And I think a lot of people face these epic challenges in life and we need to learn from people who are, you know, resilient or as resilient as they can be against, you know, all odds. And so to me, it's, 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 there's an uplifting component in telling a really hard, difficult story. If you know why you're there. How did you process the, the weight of it, the weight of it all and the, all the several conversations you've had with Leslie and, and just so you don't, shoulder too much of it on your own? So early in my career, I spent several years in Cambodia and often wrote about really hard and difficult things. It was post-war Cambodia. There was a genocide there and everyone had family members who were either killed in the genocide or took part in the genocide or both. And I was with a lot of, it it was an era when the sort of post-Vietnam the Vietnam War era journalists, some of them came back and they had this old sort of, you know, at times you'd see them drink hard drinking in in the foreign correspondence club and other places. And it could feel like you're in, you're trapped in a, an early Oliver Stone movie mm-hmm. and, you know, self-destructive and, and get hard hitting um, sometimes. But it, it struck me there seeing the contrast between them and, and my own generation of, of journalists some of whom followed that path and sort of romanticized it. But it, it struck me that the ones who had a real hard time with substance abuse, um, with self-loathing, with, with other things, they, they didn't seem to be processing the hardship in a constructive way. A lot of times they were writing, they were doing journalism that was, this happened, this side says one thing, this side says the other thing, the sort of uh, both sides-ism in a really extreme circumstance. And for me, what I, what I realized is that the people I saw who were writing it and processing the information more, coming to a deeper understanding and then telling the story so that they really felt like they were there for a deeper purpose, a lot of those people seemed a lot less self-destructive. I don't want to say that it's 100% one way or, or, or the other, but it just ta- taught me lessons about when you're telling stories that, that can be impactful and that are meaningful, and, and if you feel you get at the deeper truths in the story uh that helps to process the the tough stuff and so if i'm do, if i'm doing that then i i that the weight isn't there in the end if i don't do that and if i can't tell the story if it gets you know blocked or frozen for some reason yeah that's that's really hard um and th- and there was a time with this story where where i was struggling because the i could relate so directly to leslie's experience um, because as I said, we, we both had these nine-year-old children in California and, you know, uh, at, at the same time and, and, uh, her son Pierce, you know, I was, I'm seeing these videos and, uh, it was just such an adorable, you know, uh, lively child. And, 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 and I could, I could feel for him and connect for him. I, I feel like I've known, um, I've, I've known Pierce's. And so, so, so yeah, that did become a huge weight and, and, um, it, it took me a while to get through that. I've never had a delay like that in a, in a story before, in fact, but that, that was, that was very challenging. And, but then it's getting back to that North star of, you know, why are you here? 
and I was able to get back to that. And, um, and, the, and talking to Leslie, uh, we talked far more than several times. We've talked dozens and dozens of times, in fact, to, to get mm. this story because she wanted this story to come out in a, in a, in a useful way. She wanted some, something useful and constructive to come out of this. And she's just been such a source of, of strength that I, that I think it's really a testament to her that, um, that this, this, this story is coming out and how dedicated, how much she was willing to dig into her life and, and her and Pierce's life and share videos and photos and, and court documents and, you know, some of the most difficult things in her life. And she shared, she shared it all with me. She, she's just been a remarkable subject. I know uh, it, with some of the stories I'm drawn to or the personalities I'm drawn to, they tend to be very singularly driven or singularly focused and um, almost obsessive. And I, to some extent, I really ad- admire a lot of that in the people I like because sometimes I, my mind is a bit frenetic and prone to not focusing much. So I think I'm drawn to these people with this singular devotion because I'm like, oh, man, I really admire that and I wish I had more of that. And um, I, I bring this up to ask you, uh, when you're doing these long uh, the, these long types of features where you really lock in with um, a central figure. Is there something illustrative of who they are that reflects something in, in you yourself as a, as a person and as a reporter? What I tell my students is that journalism's really hard. <laughs> uh, it, it's been hard for a, a while, for decades. And you know, it used to be that you got a job somewhere and you kind of had a career path and you did that kind of journalism and you might shift from this newspaper to that newspaper or you might move from Newsweek to Time magazine. And then the the the, the collapsing economic model of old school journalism kind of started to blow that up. And then the um, the advent of the Internet and then social media really blew it up. And it's the, the, the survivability of it is is you know, almost everyone needs to think in an entrepreneurial way if they, if they are writing these days. And that's been the case for, I'd say, 20, 25 years, and in some ways, 30, 30 35 years. But it's, it's hard to imagine writing these kinds of stories without being entrepreneurial and thinking, you know, how do you, how do you move your pawns forward? How do you tell these stories? Uh, and all journalists forever who are doing serious journalism they face rejection all the time. It's a little bit like baseball, right? You, yeah. you have you have this little stick in your hand, and someone's throwing, <laughs> someone's throwing a ball. Just think of uh, of Major League Baseball. Someone is throwing basically a, a leather wrapped rock at a hundred miles an hour at you, and you're supposed to hit it with this stick. It's it's pretty crazy, and you fail most of the time. Most pitches you don't hit. <laughs> Um, and you don't hit them where you want to hit. And, and, you know, if you do it once in one in every four times, you're very successful, which is a little bit like journalism. You get people saying no all the time. Details are impossible to get. You can't get documents. Um, sometimes you're interviewing people who get, who are upset with you or with media or with journalism in general. You know, there's just so many ways. Sometimes your, your management, uh, your bosses, your editors, or your, if you're an editor, your reporters, um, are difficult. You, you face a lot of real challenging, high stress situations, and there's not a lot of uh, economic security. There's not a career path that, that is like it used to be where you got a job at the newspaper and sort of stayed there for you know maybe a whole career. So 
knowing why you're there is, is everything. Uh, and resilience in journalism, this is what I teach to my students, resilience in journalism is so important. It's such a powerful thing to write about. I think it's a great thing. We're all going to face these enormous challenges in our life. Uh, unless we get hit by a bus tomorrow, in which case the people who know us are going to go through the, the enormous, enormous <laughs> challenges. But the, the central thing about resilience, just to get at the two sides of your question, um, on one side, there is, it helps you as a journalist to know resilience yourself and to not let uh, you know, all of the obstacles prevent you from doing what is really important work. And then the other side is that we all need that. We all need to remember the importance of resilience. We've been through some crazy times with the pandemic. Of course, the pandemic plays a part in this story, uh, as you know. But um, we all need to be resilient and remember resilience and getting getting over the many challenges we're going to face in life. You know, we're going to lose family members. We're going to get sick. You know, if if we're uh, alive long enough to, we're going to to have our bodies decline. So we need to know how to overcome and 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 get develop a broader vision and broader perspective and and, and find the joy in the, in the hardship and difficult and ugliness. And so, yeah, the simple answer is yes. I, I get all of that uh, in some ways from from the story of Leslie Hugh. Well, very nice. Well, I want to be mindful of your time, Eric. And uh, the question I like to ask people at the end of these conversations is. Uh, is a, a recommendation of some kind for the listeners. It can be anything that you're just excited about, uh, you know, be it a, a, a brand of coffee or a, a brand of socks. It, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, so I'd ask that I just extend that to you, Eric. And, you know, what might you recommend for the listeners out there as we bring our conversation down for a landing? Um, recommend about absolutely anything in the world? Anything. I, I think it is... Um... Well, just because we were talking about the pandemic, I'm just thinking about how so many people got their, their lives shrunk down. Their lives got smaller, their social circles in many cases. Um, I, I, I encourage, encourage people to get out, to do something. Um, the kind of thing when I'm working on a story like this, I, I will go and, and play some very intense basketball to clear my mind and then come back to the story fresh. Or I will go down to the ocean, which isn't, isn't so far away uh, down here in Southern California. And and be with you know the waves are breaking and the sand and the breeze and it just clears the mind and and, and keeps you healthy. So I, I encourage people to. I don't like coffee. Uh, my socks aren't great, but I encourage people <laughs> to to get out and and um, be aware of the amazing things that that, that surround us in, in in nature and in life and and in other people, and and hopefully connecting with that. Well, that's amazing. Well, Eric, this uh, this piece that you wrote for the Atavist is. Uh... It's incredible and just a, just a really skillfully done piece that's just going to deliver on so many levels for so many people. So I just got to say just what an awesome, awesome piece it is, an awesome job you did. And thanks for coming on the show to talk about it and journalism and reporting and writing. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me. Okay. All right. Hey, thanks, CNFers. Thanks to Sayward and Eric for the time. That was a great conversation. Love having these atavist chats. I think I, I, I think Sayward might be being the, the point on these for a while because Jonah Ogles is on paternity leave for a few months. I think she's happy to, to maybe take the next month off, maybe next two, and turn it over to Jonah here. So uh, you, we love you, Sayward. Thank you so much for being able to do this and being so insightful also thanks to thanks to eric that was wonderful 
If you like this conversation as much as I did, consider sharing it and tagging me in the show at CNF Pod on Twitter and Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram. This show will only grow because of you. As you know, I'm something of a nobody, so it's the validation of your endorsements that makes the needle move. There's so much content out there, so many old shows that are worth listening to and many more new shows that deserve attention. And this show will only survive the pod fade if you celebrate it, so long as it's worth celebrating. And consider heading to patreon.com slash cnfpod to throw a few bucks into the tip jar. The show is free, but as you know, sure as hell ain't cheap. I've kind of riffed on this notion in the recent past, and even the distant past, that uh, that I've often felt like I uh, I missed the train. I remember in 2011, it was a particularly big train that I felt I missed, when Grantland, that great pop culture and sports site, uh, that was uh, Bill Simmons' uh, passion, vanity project, passion project uh, off of ESPN, and it was coming out, and I remember the ethos was to celebrate and highlight and like new and up-and-coming voices. And I remember thinking, how did you even get noticed? I felt like I was a new and up-and-coming voice in sports writing. I, I was desperate to be the do the kind of work that typically got anthologized and say best American sports writing. That was like that was that was my thing, you know. And I had a book coming out. And I wrote features, uh, but I was in. Just the land of obscurity. And if I'm being honest, not very good yet. And some might argue, still not good. But I kept thinking that I had missed the train for years. There are other people I admire too that just seem to have caught, that caught their train and they're gone. And just left on the platform. You know, there were all these other places my peers were writing for. And I was like, shit, there, there goes another train. I didn't even know it was coming. How did I miss it? And I, and I kept missing it. I'm only realizing now that there will always be another train. We just don't know the shape of that train. You know, what opportunities are forthcoming that might be there at the nexus of our rigor when this unforeseen train arrives on the platform. Like, who knows what new venture-backed website might be there when you're skilled and ready that you could never have predicted. Or maybe audio or video, who, know, who knows, as, as someone who has felt like he's missed his shot and then at 42, nearing 43, that I'm like too old to have a career because I didn't get that crucial traction in my early 30s when everybody else was. And you can't predict what will come next, but there most assuredly will be something. You know, when you look up at the arrivals board with estimated times at the train depot, there there's a train coming, but you know you, but you you just don't know what or when or where it's going. Crucial to this are structures in your life that allow you to endure the fallow periods. You know, my spouse is the breadwinner by a pole, as we say in horse racing. You know, she has the insurance um, and the steady income. I mean, she hates her job and it's killing her. So um, naturally, I do what I can. Uh, but I, you know, I clean the bathrooms vacuum, do the dishes, cook, clean. Uh, you know, I'm not great all the time. I, I But I do have reminders on my phone on Wednesdays to clean the bathroom and on Tuesdays uh, clean the air fryer and on certain days of vacuum. A- a- anyway, uh, I embody the the traditionally domestic roles as my career, such as it is, allows for that. You know, this privilege can't be ignored or denied. You know, her job has allowed me to tread water to spend years on a podcast that doesn't make any money 
uh, to freelance, barely a nickel, uh, to finally getting a, a book deal where we hope we won't even have to touch the advance money at all. You know, if you don't have this incredible gift I have, and it is a gift, you know, that's okay. The train will come. It might not feel like it, but the train always arrives on time. And we just have to believe that. So stay wild, CNFers. And if you can do, interview. See ya. See ya.